Hi, you zany jailbirds, and thanks for throwing a few cheeseburgers our way as we discuss sports films for the 122nd time here on Scoring at the Movies. If you're spoiler-reverse and haven't seen The Longest Yard before, you should know that we will be spoiling it today. I'm the diminutive loudmouth who knows reading is for rich people and who takes almost all the laughs with him when he dies, caretaker Ryan Ellis. And here's the very tall bruiser who gets emotional when his steroids are comically replaced with estrogen pills, Christy Gregorio, Kevin Nash. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. One thing we do have in common, Kevin Nash and I, are sensitive, sensitive nipples. Also Dave Batista in the Guardians movies. That's true, yeah. And much like Paul Crew, I figured that this podcast needed an infusion of fresh talent, diversity of ideas and stuff like that. So I stopped by the local basketball court on the way over here to try to recruit some new podcast co-hosts. Got fouled on the first play, and unlike Paul Crew, immediately ran away crying. So lost the game, came straight here. Same old, same old. You resemble that remark. Yeah. I am not a tough man. (laughs) Pretty sure it was like a 12-year-old boy I was playing against, too. That just immediately dominated me. Hmm. And by the way, the caretaker reference, my softball teammates called me that. I know I mentioned this on the other Longest Yard podcast we did. It's the original movie. We covered it way back in the beginning of this podcast. I think the first year we did the podcast. And they called me that for years. At least a few of them did. And they were referring, of course, to Chris Rock and this. As I recall, it was specifically a reference to the fact that you just kept buying every player on the team oversized jock straps, just mm-hmm. like Chris Rock in this movie. So the comparison was pretty apt. We didn't have a Bill Goldberg, but we had a couple of giant dicked guys on the team. That is true. Well, it's Groundhog Day again. Since it is Groundhog Day, the day we post this, we decided to go with that Bill Murray-esque theme and repeat ourselves by talking about a movie that we've covered before. Only that was the 1974 Burt Reynolds version. And this is the 2005 remake with Adam Sandler. Also, some production problems that we had means we're recording this episode for the second time. Hence me saying it's Groundhog Day again a minute ago. It is a true Groundhog Day homage this time. We've had some problems with the microphones on both podcasts I do lately. And this time, I don't know what it was. It wasn't my fault this time that I'm aware of. But we're doing it differently. We're using Bev's computer now in the podcast room. So Convicts Make Friends was released by Paramount and Columbia on May 27th, 2005. It had a pretty big budget, I guess because of the actor's salaries, because there's not really a lot of production in this exactly. No. But it made over $190 bucks worldwide. It's one of the most successful sports movies ever made. And here's an interesting note as well about the date that this got released, May 27th. Chris Rock had another movie of his come out the very same day. That was Madagascar. The Longest Yard made about $380,000 more than Madagascar did that first weekend. They were number two and number three behind Revenge of the Sith. This was a pre-slap Chris Rock when he was still a <laughs> box office draw. It is kind of amazing that regardless of whether or not it's live action or animated movies, that those two things would land at the same time with the same actor and both prove to be such hits in the same year. Mm -hmm. Big year for Chris Rock. So we're not drinking anything alcoholic today, or at least I don't think you are, because it is the middle of the afternoon on a Sunday. I've got water and you've got... My herbal blueberry tea. Oh, blueberry this time. Yes. Okay, well, the Rotten Tomatoes numbers on this... 31% of critics like this movie. That is all. 4.8 out of 10 was the average. 170 reviews are on the site. 
but 62% of audiences, so that's just barely a fresh tomato from them. Mm -hmm. And the 1974 Burt Reynolds one got 77% and 75%. And I'll say right now, this is blasphemy, but I think this one's funnier. Oh, I agree. I don't think that's blasphemy at all. And I think it's perfectly in line with what we talked about when we saw the original and did the podcast about the original. What did you say it was? It was podcast like number 17. It's been a long Something time, like that, yeah. right, since we did it? The humor or the expectations of humor in the 70s were just so different than they are now yep. that for our lens being applied to that movie, I think we're on the same page. It's not like either one of us saw it when it came out. We were both too young for I that. I was born that year. Yeah, so <laughs> just with your mom in the theater watching mm-hmm. The Longest Yard, laughing uproariously. At the guys who are trans? Yeah, exactly. The humor, such as it was, I don't think translates to a modern audience, and so we didn't find that very funny. And I think anybody watching the original Longest Yard today that had no nostalgic attachment to it, our generation or younger, I think they would agree that you can like The Longest Yard for a sports movie, even for a drama, but if you look at it as a comedy, I think you'd be stymied in 2023, right? Yeah, I think we said that on that podcast, and we we're, I think, right. The sports in both of them is pretty good. Yes. Let's cover that right now. So for a comedy, Adam Sandler playing a football player. We know he can play basketball, and he does play basketball in this. Yep. But we didn't know that then. We only learned that watching Hustle last year, because I looked it up, and there you see him being a good basketball player. Exactly. But the sports action in the original, and now in this one as well, is almost right in line with a serious football movie would be Friday Night Lights, for example. Maybe that's better portrayed there, but not by that much. Obviously, you cut this movie some slack because it is, at moments anyway, clearly like a slapsticky level of comedy. And Mm -hmm. so there's sequences in the football game that are just played for pure humor, right? Like the I made him shit himself stuff, which I think we both agree. Okay, fine. You want your lowbrow gag? They overplayed it hard. Stone cold! Stone cold! Stone cold! And his diaper. Yeah. (laughs) That was Steve Austin that shit himself. I kind of do appreciate that Stone Cold was willing to do that in this Mm -hmm. movie, given his rep and his image back in 05, even if he had retired at that point. Mm -hmm. But there's sequences in the football game that are silly, and you excuse those for the comedy elements of this movie. But that aside, I agree with you. It's portrayed really well, by and large. And the unexpected athleticism of Adam Sandler, even if he doesn't play football or hasn't historically... There's like a translatable set of skills, even if it's just you know how to realistically look like you're transferring your weight when you're throwing a ball or shooting a ball in basketball. And there's just the hand-eye coordination elements that he clearly has. Mm. And it's interesting because you compare that to a guy like Wesley Snipes, who is the fittest dude on the planet when he's shooting white men can't jump, but apparently can't shoot a basketball to save his life and they have to edit around it. Right. And he can't really play baseball. He can't throw at least in baseball. Right. And we saw him hitting in the fan, and he looks really bad in that. Exactly. He hits badly in Major League, but he's supposed to, because he's supposed to be the guy who can't hit the ball more than 20 feet, but he can really run. Right, but he can run out infield singles. But especially in White Man Can't Jump, you would never know. you think he's an outstanding basketball player. Woody Harrelson is. So he's the Adam Sandler of that. It is a prison comedy, too. It's such a weird balance to make a movie about prison be a comedy. There aren't that many of them, I don't think. No. But the biggest laughs, and I said it already, that when he dies, a lot of the comedy of this movie is gone, and that's Chris Rock. He's got the best one-liners, certainly. He's got the wittiest lines in the movie, bar none. You got knocked the fuck out. Yeah. So an homage to Friday. Adam Sandler's got some cute lines in this, but by and large, he plays it more straight he up really does. than you would expect. Mm-hmm. I like that in this, though. He's letting oh, other people agree. be funnier than he is. If you look at the critics' numbers that you just cited, there's a couple of reasons why I would expect the critics' numbers to be, I think, undeservedly low. You don't have to love this movie as a critic, but I think in this era, one, it was cool to hate on Adam Sandler. Mm-hmm. And I think that's become less so as he's proven that he's got some dramatic chops, whether it's Uncut Gems or Hustle or something. 
hating on Adam Sandler in this era is also not totally undeserved because he was pumping out some real schlock for a while there True. with his buddies. But he's such a likable guy. 100%. Yeah, no question about it. But and he's I, also, by the way, nominated for a SAG Award for Hustle. For a guy that's been in the industry for so long, has at this stage put together some solid dramatic performances, mm-hmm. and we both agree was really good in Hustle. It's one of those quasi-deserve for the role, quasi-here's-like-a-career-nod mm-hmm. kind of thing. All the Razzie nominations he's had, that would temper some of them a little <laughs> that, bit. That is true. And speaking of Razzies, Burt Reynolds was nominated for one for this movie. Now, they paired it with the Dukes of Hazard, where he probably deserved that. Oh, okay, yeah. The winner was Hayden Christensen in Revenge of the Sith. Well-deserved. <laughs> Well-deserved But win. Burt Reynolds was not bad in this movie. I don't get why he's in that category. Maybe because he made those two movies in the same year. I agree with you. I thought he was solid. Solid to good in this movie. Maybe he suffers, or his performance in this movie, in the eyes of the people nominating him for the Razzie anyway, maybe suffers from the same thing that I think the movie suffers from with the critics, which is the second point, and that is the comparison to the original. Mm -hmm. So people are looking at Burt Reynolds in this, and then Burt Reynolds in the original. He was so beloved in that role. and so Huge star in the 70s. Yeah. What are you doing, Burt? This is so much poorer performance. Critics can be up their own ass. Petty little bitches sometimes. Yeah, uh, I guess we're critics too. We're probably petty little bitches sometimes. Oh, 100%. Everybody's got their own peccadillos, got their own impressions and stuff, and that's fine. But I feel like there's, at least in the critical world of newspaper critics, online critics, whatever, you know, where you're posting something and you want to be seen to be maintaining some sort of credentials or bona fides or real movie buff aspirations where you look down on movies like The Longest Yard yep. or you hold up movies like the original Longest Yard to an unfair degree and then by virtue of that... This has to suck. Yeah, it has to suck. Exactly. But why? Why can it be maybe not better? Although, again, we enjoyed it more. So I guess from that standpoint, we're saying it's better. Exactly. And moviedom is always going to be subjective to some degree or another. I think some of it sometimes, too, comes down to what mood you are in when you saw it. Oh, yeah. Did you eat? Did you have a fight with your wife? Are you sick? Any of those kinds of things. Yeah. You've said something before from Ebert and it was something to do with the impact of the movie being... The production and the choices made, but also the reception of the audience. Like, how do you receive the movie? As much the as line was, it's not what the movie's about, it's how it's about it. Yeah, okay, that's fair. How is this about the subject matter? I think this movie has its tonal problems, mm-hmm. whipsawing between comedy and drama and stuff like that. But I think it's a very digestible movie. But the degree to which you're going to digest it as an audience member is going to vary wildly depending on your mood going into it depending on your opinion of the first movie and depending on your opinion of guys like Adam Sandler and to a lesser degree, Burt Reynolds, right? Maybe even the WWE guys that are in it. Or the football players. Or the football players. So all that stuff's going to play into Mm -hmm. it. People hate on remakes generally. Yes. Which is, to a certain degree, I think, fair in as much as it's like a symptom of how creatively bankrupt Hollywood has become to some degree. where they Just just recycle old ideas. one word for you. Ghostbusters. I thought you were going to say money. <laughs> no, that's why they do it, of course. Yeah. But Ghostbusters was hated when it was announced. Never yeah. mind when they actually saw the movie. No, exactly. And that's what I mean. The notion of remakes often piss people off because how dare you remake something I love so much? You can love the original and just ignore the remake. Never if, watch it. If you don't want to participate mm-hmm. in it, the existence of a remake does nothing to the legacy of the original, right? Unless you, well, then it's more about being a sequel. Because even though I'm not one of those people that hates the prequels, I own them. I don't hate them. I don't love them either, but I don't hate them. But I will say that you've changed Darth Vader's story arc when you make him the tragic hero for the entire six-movie series. Mm -hmm. He becomes Luke before Luke rather than being the bad guy the whole time. But generally speaking, yes, either don't watch a remake or a sequel or watch it once and never see it again. I feel slightly differently about prequels and sequels because of what you just said. Because it can affect the canon of the thing you Mm -hmm. love. 
Yeah, if you don't like a remake, don't participate in it. And I think that's part of the problem with this movie, at least in 05. I'd be interested to know if people feel differently now because another 20 years now separates us from the original. Or and there's better goodwill for anyway. Sandler than there would have been at the time. hundred percent. I saw this on the big screen. I think maybe I got free tickets. I don't remember wanting to see this exactly because I wasn't a big fan of Sandler at that point, generally speaking. Although were I you, did love You Punch were a Drunk wrestler Love. fan at this point. I was a wrestling you? fan also. Yeah. yeah, I watched it every Monday. I did love Punch Drunk Love a couple years before, but he also... And Spanglish actually wasn't a terrible movie. Cloris Leachman's in that with him. I think she plays his mother-in-law, yeah. and of course she's the secretary in the jail in this movie. So sexy in so this maybe movie. He, so sexy. <laughs> she really is. Maybe he got her to come into this because he liked working with her the year before. Could be. But I saw it with a friend of mine, and we had a good time, and the audience did too. It's an audience movie. Yes. But then I heard one time, it may have been Larry King that said this. Maybe it was a critic, though, because he's not a critic. But whoever it was that said this, they were at a screening. All these critics are laughing. Movie gets reviewed. Maybe not all of them, but so many of them. Terrible. Hate it. Awful. A week ago, you were fucking laughing, you hypocrite. Yeah. But you said it. They don't want to look like they're not serious. Roger Ebert wasn't like that. Roger Ebert liked movies that Gene Siskel, his future partners after Siskel died, or just fans would rip on him for. But he was honest enough to say, I had a good time with this, including a Burt Reynolds movie. I remember Gene Siskel hated that Ebert liked Cop and a Half, <laughs> which I don't remember ever seeing. I heard it was terrible, but Ebert laughed, I guess. So he said, I liked it. He's not going to pull one of these, no, it's bad, even though people would have said, but Roger, you laughed a week ago. Credit to Ebert if that's the case. Mm -hmm. I didn't agree with everything he said about movies when he reviewed them, but like I said before, subjective, right? Mm -hmm. And he's more honest than most of them, I think. And you can go too hard either way. If you're such a fan of movies that you're incapable of saying this movie stinks, that bothers me, I think, specifically because I spent so much time reading Ain't It Cool News when that first blew up in the early-ish days of the internet. I can't remember if it was Harry Styles or some of the other posters on there, but every movie review they posted was always good <laughs> to great because they're just such movie fans that every movie had something for them. And if that's you, that's cool. But I think there's also a little bit of an onus on a critic to find the middle ground, to understand what your average viewer is looking for in a movie and yeah. speak to that. So you can go too hard, everything is great, or too hard that everything stinks, unless it's an auteur of the 70s style of movie. Try to find some middle ground and objective, realistic impressions about a movie. And it sounds like Ebert, from what you're describing, did that mm -hmm. as often as not. I agree completely. But audiences like this movie well enough to make it 12th sure. at the box office that year. That's that, not bad at all. We've covered yeah. Coach Carter. It was 36th. That's a better movie for sure. But it's 36th. And Murderball was 196th. So they're both in our archives. This is our third 2005 movie. Very different too, aren't they? Yeah. Coach Carter's pretty serious. There's some laughs, I guess. Murderball actually has a good sense of humor, but it's about not even a depressing topic. These people are inspirational guys. It was also a very small documentary. Yes, that did well for documentary. And then you got yeah. this mostly slapstick comedy. But okay, the tonal problems. So just like in the original movie, and I remember we talked about this on the first podcast of The Longest Yard, that I didn't think they would have killed off Chris Rock. But when we did that one, I looked ahead because I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. I've only seen it twice, 2005 and then last week. But I thought they couldn't have killed Chris Rock, but they did. Yeah. Not the same way, but similar enough way they do with Caretaker in the original film. I don't remember that Caretaker being nearly as funny as this Caretaker is. No. But I think he's supposed to be some of the comic relief, but certainly the heart. And then they have Caretaker's Funeral. It actually does say Caretaker's if that's his first name. His <laughs> legit first name. Makes me wonder if they even knew what his name was. Oh, it could be that. You're in a place for so long and everybody just calls you Caretaker. At a certain point, that's just your name and nobody thinks to ask, what's your actual first name? Case in point, in Shawshank, I bet none of them knew that Morgan Freeman's character's name was Ellis Redding. Yes, Because he's exactly. always called Red, but you hear the mail call when Andy's escaped. Ellis Redding has mail. That's right. No one ever calls him Ellis. I think, well, maybe the parole board. They must. Well, we can all agree that Ellis is a ridiculous name. So why, oh. why would anybody call somebody else? I don't get it at all. No. A stupid name. 
But anyway, the Chris Rock death. And then we've got, I don't know, I didn't look at the timer, but probably 45 minutes or so. It's like okay. in the original movie. I think in that case, it was about half the film. This is probably a little less than half of the film is the football game yes. and the lead up to it, the game day, all that kind of stuff. Did that work for you then? This very sincere funeral, which could have been in some serious drama. Yeah. And then you go back to being comedic without the funniest guy in the whole movie anymore. It worked for me in that each individual segment, the funeral I thought was well done. I thought the football game was well done. I thought the comedic elements in the football game, by and large, worked. Each individual element was fine, for sure. It's still part and parcel of the weird whipsaw feeling I had watching this movie. We are super somber now. Now you're hitting somebody so hard they shit themselves. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the stadium is going to repeat that eight times. And now if you're throwing a football at this guy's nuts, it was a weird back and forth that way. But I think it worked. I think the one thing I definitely noticed, I think I might have asked you about this, but I forgot what your response was. <laughs> Groundhog Day. is Again? Yeah, again. And I think this is a symptom of how unfunny the first movie was to me, the original, versus how much I did enjoy some of the humor in this leading up to Caretaker's death. Yeah. Because I don't remember the Caretaker in the original being much of a humorous element, but he was definitely a more heartfelt element to me. So mm -hmm. when he died... I feel like that hit me harder than Chris Rock's death hit me in this. Okay. I felt his absence, and I still feel like the Adam Sandler, Chris Rock friendship within the movie played. Guys who are legit friends in real life, of course. Oh, yeah, so that goes a long way to helping it play because mm -hmm. they just have that rapport already. But I didn't feel the same gut punch I felt when I watched the original. And in both cases, he's murdered. Yeah. Not by the warden directly. It's his mole, Unger, that does it here. The That's fire probably Unger in the original. I didn't look it up. Yeah, it was. But he's killed by, what is the light bulb in the first movie when he pulls right. the light cord? And yep. then, like you said in the previous recording, we did. Go ahead. He pulls the light cord and it doesn't turn on. And you're like, oh, no, it's going to blow. But then he taps it a few times and the light bulb comes but on. it's the radio. Yeah. But then when he turns the radio off, because he can't stand the honky music mm, or whatever right. he calls it. Kaboom. And Unger makes sure no one can get in to help him. And I guess he burns alive. Yeah. Pretty grisly moment. This movie, though, I guess one of its biggest weaknesses is that, and this is in some ways fine, that you're not trying to make an entire different movie when you call it The Longest Yard and you cast the star from the first movie in a pretty big supporting role in this. Right. And Ed Lauder, who's the captain in the first movie, is in this in a very small Sorry. role. We've covered that guy a lot of times, by the way. He's in Talladega Nights, and he was in the original Longest Yard, and he was in something else. What was he in? He's barely in this. He's in the golf scene. He's in Youngblood. We just covered that recently. And Seabiscuit. But anyway, if you're going to make a remake, you should make it at least similar enough. Sure. But this movie really does hit most of the same beats, including the final score. I didn't look up if the final score is exactly the same, but the way that the inmates win the game is the same. The game plays out pretty much beat for beat the same way that the original does, minus some of the changes in humor, right? right. But you're right. This movie sticks pretty close to the script. And I think the biggest shifts you notice if you watch the original and you watch this is... They play up the humor way more in this one, especially for a modern-ish audience. Of course, you've got Adam Sandler and Chris Rock as two of the main leads in this. and so Tracy yeah. Morgan. And Tracy Morgan has a pretty substantial role in this. But aside from the tonal changes, they sprinkle in some different scenes, right? And we've talked already about Adam Sandler's athleticism being on display. And the way he plays in this movie, I thought, was really well done because he needs to recruit some new players and he wants to get Deacon's crew on board how do you do that? Well, these guys are always hanging out playing basketball, so I'm going to challenge you to one-on-one, -on -one, and if I win, you play for me. If you win, I go away forever. And I thought that was a really well-played scene because it sets up Paul Crew's character to be the guy that is unassuming at first glance. He looks like he doesn't care. He's not like a giant shredded athlete or anything, mm -hmm. but he takes the punishment he needs to take to get the job Never done. Never complains. Never complains. And he doesn't win the game. They could easily have had him 
be like a punk about it and still win the game and force the other guys to come play for him. But instead, he takes the punishment, he loses unfairly, doesn't say a word, and ultimately wins the respect of the guys to come play with him. Well, first it's just Megat. So yes. Nelly playing Megat. Exactly. Cornell Haynes Jr. is his real name. <laughs> Great name. I think Nelly does a pretty good job in this for a non-actor. Most of his credits on IMDb, music video, music video, yeah. music video. I couldn't really see any other acting jobs. Maybe he's done something else. I can't think of any. And he does a pretty good job in this. I'm surprised he didn't get more acting gigs. Yeah, he's fine. It was a little bit distracting simply because you see him in nothing else, really. I didn't know who he was because I had not seen the movie in so long. But he's, of course, the one that comes out and says, I respect you, so I'll play. I'll be your running yeah. back. I also didn't recognize Michael Irvin when he plays basketball. No. And, of course, he's a real football player, so you get credibility. Bill Romanowski's in this. Bosworth is in this. Yeah. And then Steve Austin. I think Kevin Nash played football in their pre-wrestling days. And Goldberg, of course, yeah. yeah. So you get a lot of people that have played football in one way or another. Some pros. I think Irvin's in the Hall of Fame. Yes. So you've got some actually really good athletes, but I didn't know that was Irvin playing basketball. He and he's good, good at that too. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Michael Irvin plays basketball in his free time. I think or he's Wesley Snipes. And they, or they cut around really well. Yeah. Who knows? But yeah, that whole sequence played well for me, not just because it recruited the players that he needed, make it first and the rest follow later in the movie. They, they follow. follow because Steve Austin, of all people, is using the N-word yeah. to try to taunt Maggot to do something so he'll get punished and they won't be able to play for the cons after all. But Maggot does not bite. And when they see that, they think, oh, we're going to make that fucker pay. Yeah. And of course they do because he shits himself. <laughs> they really make him pay. The later scene when Steve Austin is being the racist ass towards Maggot, that scene can happen, but I wouldn't buy the cons coming over to play football with Adam Sandler if the basketball scene didn't already set up the fact that Sandler had proven so. Oh, I see. So if it's just we see them being racist, we're going to make those guys pay. You need both things. I think you need both things because when Sandler is first arriving at the prison, the guards hate his guts, but all the inmates hate his guts Mm -hmm. too, with a few exceptions like caretaker. It's like he's a rapist or something like that. Yeah. He was accused of shaving points. And if you're a sports fan, you hate that, right? And I've cited examples before of like Donaghy, the ref in the NBA shaving points, or like yeah. Pete Rose, who didn't shave points, but was clearly betting on games where he had inside so information. So it's compromised. It was compromised. The games he played in or managed were compromised, is what I'm saying. And that's one reason yeah. why I'm never a Pete Rose fan, the way some people are. What did Pete do? He compromised for years the Reds' outcomes. That's right. Because Even he was, if he bet to win, that he might have done something he wouldn't normally do to try to win one game to win one bet. Or even when he was a player coach, because then you control yeah. pitcher changes and things like that. Those players, those refs are so despised by any sports fan or anybody in the sporting community. You can understand why Paul Crew would be hated for point shaving. One thing I wish they had done in this movie around that, though, is make it a little bit more clear. If he had pulled the Pete Rose move of I didn't shave points, oh, you caught me. Okay, maybe I did. But I didn't do this. Oh, you caught me again. Yeah. Okay, maybe I did. Because that's the other reason I don't like Rose is that he's been caught so many different lies. Yeah. Everybody talks about how crew shaved points. Everybody seems to know it was definitely a thing that happened. But it wasn't proven. We don't know. No, it wasn't proven. Oh, it wasn't? It wasn't legally officially proven. Okay, so he wasn't but the like, NFL basically just said, get out of here anyway. I see. So is he, what the movie's implying. We find out later at the end of it, of course, he admits he did it. But I wish there was a little bit more to that. I was in deep with some bad people who were going to cripple me if I didn't shave yeah. points, which is fine. But tell me, A, were you denying all the way, Paul, or were you just staying silent? Because I do think there's a little bit of a difference there. Mm-hmm. And B... Why were you in so deep with these guys to begin with? You were meant to be MVP-level caliber quarterback in the late 90s, early aughts. You were making a ton of bank. And you were doing underwear ads, apparently, as we find out from Cloris Leachman. Boy, do we find out about that. <laughs> so you were making money. Were you gambling on your games, too? I wish there was a little bit more color to that. They don't talk about being a drug guy. No. He's drunk in the beginning of the film. 
but I don't think he was supposed to be a drug person. You know, so maybe they needed to explain that a little bit better. I think it's also true in the original that he did do it and doesn't admit it until the yes. next scene with them. Almost like saying, I never even told a girlfriend. My parents don't know. That's right. No, he says, I never said it out loud before. So they don't know. Nobody knows. First person who finally knows, officially knows. Well, I guess the gangsters that were involved would have known too. But this is the first time he's ever told anybody he's in any way close to. And the funny thing about it is, this applies to a lot of things, but I'm going to quote somebody who's in this movie, who was in so many Sandler movies. So in a nutshell, The Longest Yard, you shouldn't do it. <laughs> Meaning, you probably shouldn't get too close to these cons because when all this is over with, okay, maybe they're on your side. Maybe that's actually a good thing. But the end of the film, just like in the first movie, he goes for the ball, gets it, and then gives it to the warden and says, stick this in your trophy case. The exact same line. And in the meantime, Captain Knauer, who has just said, I respect you, you played the best you could, and we barely beat you. No, sorry, they lost to them, right, because the cons win the game. I respect you. I'll back you up that you didn't kill Caretaker, because the warden says he's going to frame him for that death, even though really the warden, in a way, did it. Right. But the whole time, there's a giant gun on him. And I think in both versions, the captain's saying, stop, crew, I'm going to shoot. And there's snipers above. He's risking it for a fucking ball to make a point. In both movies, I don't buy it. I think it's a dumb move. I agree. You shouldn't do it. Maybe there was a lot of stadium noise. They didn't hear the captain yelling. But in both cases, there was a whole scene where the guards and the warden and the captain gave a speech to the inmates saying, you try to make a move to the exits. We got snipers all over the place. We will shoot you in the head. Mm -hmm. So it does come off as very stupid and all for the sake of sticking it verbally to the warden after you've already stuck it to the warden. You won the game, Mm -hmm. right? You're effectively risking dying just so you can just have a zinger at the end. Mm -hmm. It's clearly one of those things that was written into the script because it was a movie sequence that had to happen in the eyes of the writer in the original. We need a zinger for Burt Reynolds' character to go out on, even if it doesn't really make sense. It's for the weak zinger, too, in both cases. Weak, yeah. Like you said earlier, this movie copies the original so closely that they just had to include that in here as well, and to the detriment of the movie, ultimately. And what is his future now? Because he's gone against what the warden wanted. Oh, he's so screwed. He's never going to get out of that prison. Even if the captain says, yeah, it was not... Paul Crew that killed Caretaker. The warden's just going to be like, all right, fine. Paul Crew just beat up some guy in the mess hall, which he actually did. Right, started a brawl. Started a brawl. to the box for a week for that. Trump up something else he did, and there'll just be like a sequence of 12 to 18 month additional time on his sentence for the rest of his life. Well, the captain can't stop that anyway, that the warden, because he has political clout, could make his stretch longer. And also maybe the warden could just fire the captain. That's true. Or when the captain's not there, either at night or when he's on his day off. Okay, Dunham, now that you've not shit yourself anymore, or the Romanowski guard, or the Bosworth guard, beat the fuck out of him, or Kevin Nash, beat the living shit out of him today when Knauer's not here. The one thing that maybe could have solved all of that, though, is at the end of the movie, and honestly, I don't remember what the captain says to crew at the end of the first movie. I know he says something similar, but I don't remember the exact verbiage. But in the remake, if he just said to Adam Sandler, you're all right, crew, you played a hell of a game. We're going to take the warden down for killing caretaker. We know it wasn't you. Because then the warden is no longer the guy that can screw Paul Crew over. He gets arrested himself or something, right? So the other thing we find out is that the warden himself was once a prison guard, right? So that's why the librarian dude is there for the rest of his life, because he punched the prison guard who became the warden. And then the warden, out of spite, kept this one guy there. And it was worth it every second. Yeah. And I know that they call that back later in the movie, and that's part of the reason why Paul Crew ultimately decides, I'm not going to throw the game after all, I'm going to win it, because even if I have to stay here for the rest of my life, it's worth it. I don't know if I buy that necessarily, but nonetheless, we know that the warden instructed the firebug dude to take out Caretaker. We know that the captain was there when he did it, so he could just testify, I saw him do it, this is the reason why Caretaker died. I think that wraps everything up. 
the captain becomes a new warden. He's hmm. friendly with crew. Crew's, uh, or at least fair. At least fair. Changing two sentences, and I think it fixes all of that. Good points. But maybe the guy hated his life so much because, and maybe he shouldn't have, but he clearly must have in the beginning. Look at the way he is with Courtney Cox. He's drunk. He's obstinate. He steals her car. He has no respect for the cops. And you don't have to have respect for the cops if you don't want to, but you do run the risk of getting hurt, even if you are a famous dude. And considering what he does, both movies do it, and he deserves to go to jail for what he does, maybe even more so in this version. Yeah. I don't think he wants to be out in the real world anyway. He hates his life. He's in San Diego with this beautiful woman. And sometimes I forget how hot Courtney Cox was, yeah. especially in this film. That dress, she was always so small and skeletal. Not that she's exactly anything close to big in this, but her boobs are. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, hair, face, everything. She's a very beautiful woman and very angry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she has every right to be angry in this movie, for But even sure. before he steals the car, she's mad. A, you're right, Courtney Cox is stunningly beautiful and... I don't know if it was the pressure on a hit sitcom when she was on Friends to just be so skinny that once that series ended, she was able to gain a little bit of weight back on her frame. Like you said, it was only a little. But The irony is that she looks better than this than she looked in all the years on that show. No, she's a fantastically beautiful woman. That's part of the reason why I'm looking at Paul Crew here. You're a kept man, so you got no financial woes, no responsibilities. Now, granted, the whole world seems to hate you. Yeah. But you're in a relationship with this rich, beautiful woman. Life is hard for you, Paul Crew. <laughs> I get it. That said, that was the opening to the original movie, too, mm-hmm. essentially. He hates himself so much he for shaving the point, so therefore that's why he hates his life. And now they can finally say it out loud. That's the other thing, too. Saying that out loud to those prisoners, the fellow cons, sets him free. Yeah. I'm glad he doesn't say that, but that's obviously what that's supposed to mean. I think that's true. He doesn't care if he gets out because the world holds nothing for him. Sure, okay, but then by the time we get to the end of the movie where he's sticking it to the warden, he's already had that moment of catharsis where he does confess to the prisoners what had happened. So you would think at that point, after opening up once, that would bring about a moment of realization, maybe? I've done this once. Granted, it's a group of prisoners. They're probably not going to tell a whole lot of people because look at where we are. But I did it once. It's going to be easier from here, and I can tell whoever it might be, my loved ones, a therapist, whoever, going forward and find a way... I could see an argument being made that he's not going to go on Jim Rome's show or something and say, listen, I did shave the points. It's because the mob was going to break my kneecaps if I didn't, because then the mob's probably going to break your kneecaps. For talking. (laughs) For talking. Right. So, fair. I was going to say, why not? Because Mark McGuire finally confessed to the steroids thing, tearily. Why couldn't Paul Crew? But you're right. Mark McGuire wasn't (laughs) killed by the steroid people. (laughs) Exactly. Or at least badly hurt. The big pharmaceutical companies coming after Mark McGuire. But I think it's definitely a fair point that early in the movie, he's got this... I couldn't care less about the world kind of thing. Mm. And that's exactly why we get the whole sequence of him playing Demolition Derby with 18 different cop cars, right? Mm. The stunt casting in this movie is also kind of interesting during the cop sequence when you've got Dan Patrick as the cop that's just giggling. You said Jim Rome doing his job. Dan Patrick has the same job at that time, but he's playing a cop in the movie, though. Yeah, Yeah. which is super funny to me because we also see Chris Matthews later in the booth also doing the job he does. Right. So why do you have this one sports announcer not announcing sports? But for all we know, he went to Adam Sandler and said, listen, I want a cool mustache and I want to play a cop. I only need to be in one scene. I'm going to arrest you. Yeah, I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to giggle at your jokes. That's all I want, man. They could have been friends. Could have been. I'm sure. Sandler has a lot of friends, I'm thinking, the business. We know about people like Chris Rock, of course. Yeah. But yeah, so how about Burt Reynolds then? So he's got this major supporting role playing Nate Scarborough. He scores the touchdown like Nate does in the 1974 one. I was reading online that Burt said he wanted to take the hit for real from, was it Bosworth? Maybe Romanowski, one of the real football players. Anyway, he wanted to take the hit for real. Right. So if he did, at his age, yes, former athlete. He was very convincing in the first movie, of course, playing the quarterback, playing Paul Crew. 
But if you took that hit for real, that is crazy. <laughs> he doesn't need yeah. to, but that does up the realistic depiction of the sport factor in this sure. if he really did take that hit and he doesn't play anymore in the rest of the game. We already said we think Reynolds does a pretty good job, but he does do one thing I really hate, and he did it in Mystery Alaska, too, which we covered a year or two ago, a couple years ago, I guess. Yeah, that's right. He does the slow clap. At the end of the hockey game in Mystery Alaska, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert for when slow claps. When they lost, yeah. he claps because they stayed with the Rangers as long as they did and gave him yeah. a real game. And in this, he does it to inspire the other cons. I don't have a lot to say about that because I agree with you. I think it's a wildly overplayed. Rudy, oh, I hate it so much. Rudy, same basic idea. Yeah, it's it, been done to death by so many movies, and certainly Rudy did it, and we didn't like it in that movie because we didn't buy it. I didn't like that either in this movie, but he did it fine. That aside, you got to like the commitment, right? That he took that hit, assuming that's true, mm-hmm. because when he filmed this, he would have been what, like 68, 69 years old, thereabouts old, anyway. Yeah. Certainly not a young guy no. by any stretch. He was born in thirty six, so he was going on seventy. Yeah, pushing 70, right? And you've got these giant dudes that are going to hit you for real. Mm. If you're Burt Reynolds, you don't have to do that. At this point in his career, why? (laughs) Obviously, he wanted to do it for realism. He wanted to commit to the role and more power to you. But you don't have to do that. And it just goes to the fact that he was committed to this. And for a guy of his stature, even in 2005, when his career had certainly waned by he that He made point. a lot of crappy movies between yeah. Boogie Nights and this. Exactly. So, granted, but he's still who he was. He still mm-hmm. had a certain amount of cachet, and I'm sure he still had a hell of a lot of money in the bank. Yeah. So, you commit to this role that you are playing not even second fiddle to, third fiddle to Adam Sandler and Chris Rock, yeah. I would suggest, in a remake of a movie that you made famous originally... You could have very easily said, yeah, I'll show up for a huge paycheck and I'll pout my way through this and put in a lackadaisical performance. But he didn't. That's right. The more we talk about it, it irritates me more that he got the Razzie nomination, even if only in part for this movie, because he clearly was giving it his all. And if his performance wasn't perfect, it was committed. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was effective 90% of the time. Yeah, good inspiration and good leadership. He's effectively their coach. Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about yet, though, because I said Chris Rock's the funniest thing, but the second funniest thing, and it's surprising, although he's a very underrated actor, especially for a wrestler, Kevin Nash. Yeah. It's cheap, the jokes they do, the giant bottle that says, steroids, <laughs> and then the <laughs> bottle of estrogen, which I guess that one made more sense. It was still big letters, but that looked like it might have been a real bottle. I don't think sure. it was. But steroids, just giant letters. But then he, of course, becomes womanly, which some people might say is a cheap shot. But Nash sells it. He's pretty funny in this movie, even with yeah. some jokes that I think... Another day, I might hate them. This is one of those kinds of movies. You pick me on the wrong day, and I might just sit there with my arms folded and say, that's fucking stupid. But I did laugh the other night when I saw this movie, and Kevin Nash was a big reason why. I did, too. That steroid bottle was very silly to me. I'm sure if it just had testosterone on one bottle and estrogen on the other, it would have played a little bit better. But I'm almost certain that steroids, or at least steroids are the type that you're going to take for performance purposes. They're not pills, are they? I don't think they're ever pills. Aren't they always injectable? That's what I thought, too. I know you need it to be pills for the gag, so okay, fine, whatever. But yeah, I agree with you. I thought Kevin Nash was, for what they asked him to do, pretty great. And especially in a movie like this, a movie led by Adam Sandler, where you're always just kind of worried he's going to do something too silly for the tone of the movie. They could have gone so much further with that gag. Yes. You could say that's stupid or silly, and it is. But, but if you make it work, it's not so much. The whole, I care. Yeah. From yeah. a guy who's seven feet tall saying this to everybody. He's bigger than everybody in this movie, except maybe Dalip Singh, who was the that's great right. colleague in WWE. But he's bigger than everybody else, and yet he's the one that's getting to play this character. And he really, like we said about Burt Reynolds, commits to it. We already referenced the sensitive nipples gag, but the biggest gag is just that he's trying to ask somebody what's wrong. 
He's actually a normalish human being because he's not hopped up on steroids right now. They could have taken it so much further. And the fact that they reined it in a little bit and kept it reasonably tasteful, good job, guys. Mm-hmm. And I agree, Kevin Nash pulled it off really well, I thought. And we didn't love the trans jokes in the original movie, which were definitely way more anti, what do you call it? The bigotry, basically. They were bigoted. bigoted, yeah. yeah. It was... It's in here, too. Repeat what you said in the first podcast, if you remember about you thinking that it's not really all that bad. Maybe because Tracy Morgan, I guess they sold it in the original movie as well, but he definitely does play up the fact that he's not mocking people like this. He just acts like he is one. Yeah. I don't want to say that it wasn't all that bad, because I do think there's still definitely an element of trans panic with the Brucey character okay, kind yeah. of stuff. With right? all these guys in that time frame, 2005, that's not exactly surprising. Either. Yeah. So they I, probably wouldn't do it now. Even these guys probably wouldn't do it now. No, I'm not trying to defend it whatsoever. The one thing I did find interesting is because we hated the bigotry of the first movie mm-hmm. as it related to the trans population of the jail so much and the way they portrayed that, I thought it was interesting the way that they evolved. They kept it in. I don't know that you needed to do that because (laughs) even though the characters themselves in this movie, the trans characters have more of a role to play in the original, they just basically pop up from time to time as cheerleaders and you're just meant to like point and laugh. Look at how crazy it is. Those are men dressed as women. In this one, there's actually a little bit of an arc to Tracy Morgan's character. There's a little bit more going on there. Nicholas Turturro. Yes, that's right. And the gags are evolved too, in as much as you're not just pointing at them anymore. Tracy Morgan is making jokes. And sometimes it's at Brucey's expense, the little tiny inmate guy that, That's Turturro, yeah. that wishes he was better at football. What did you think about that, though? Because it's shown in the videos that he's closeted homosexual, or at least bisexual, I guess, because he does have a wife back home. I didn't like its portrayal in the movie, only because that flashes up on screen and everyone laughs. Look at how funny it is. Brucey's in a relationship with this other trans character. From a 2023 lens, that's still tasteless and kind of gross. But... The one line that Brucey had at the end of the movie when Paul Crew's been yanked out of the game mm-hmm. or he's given up already. So Brucey, the terrible football player, has been put in there by Nate. All right, this is Brucey's time to shine. Come on, God, if you help me out here, I promise to stop cheating on my wife with, what do you say? Black oh, man? Isn't black it? man or something like that, yeah. Okay, that's a bit of a funny line because, oh, Brucey's married and mm-hmm. he recognizes he's cheating on his wife. But as a whole, I feel like if they were to remake this movie again right now, you just do away with... It would be gone, I think, yeah. It's either gone, or I think it becomes more like a dramatic relationship. Brucey and this character are actually involved somehow, and it's not just played for laughs. It's mm-hmm. given more humanity, maybe, is the best way to put it. At best, it's probably just gone. You're right. Yeah. Just get rid of it. So Sandler, he's Mr. Cool in this, not playing one of his dumb characters, one of his lame voice characters. We've covered him four times, though. Happy Gilmore, which is actually a legit funny movie. We like that. We 100%. covered it a long time ago. Waterboy, I laugh, but more for Henry Winkler and Kathy Bates than for Sandler because he's playing the, I'm just this person who's got to be well with him. And then we already talked about doing Hustle last year. Chris Rock doesn't seem to have any sports movies in his resume, but he was in Dogma, which Bev and I covered a couple years ago, many years ago, and then other Sandler films. Reynolds, we talked about the two movies we've covered before, The First Longest Yard and Mystery Alaska, but he's also in Semi-Tough, a football film, yep. and Driven. The racing movie, I remember not liking it. Sly Stallone and some guy who never became a star, Kit Pardue, I think it was the lead in that. Ah, Kit Pardue. But Reynolds is in that film. James Cromwell, I love this. He was in Babe. Of course, he got nominated for the Oscar for the Pig movie. But he was also in, we covered it last year, The Babe, which was before Babe. (laughs) And also, I didn't know how tall he is. He's six foot seven. So you got some monstrous people in this movie, including their warden who also sells that he can be a bad man because in Babe, he sure wasn't. He's such a nice, lovely guy in that. In many movies, he's been a nice, lovely guy. But when he wants to play a bad ass, or at least an asshole, he can do it, and he proved it in this film. For all that I've complained a little bit about some of the stunt casting, 
I like the wrestlers in this. I like the football players in this. They bring some elements to it that are good from an acting perspective and good from a physical perspective. William Fickner, I like mm-hmm. a lot. Cromwell, I thought he was great casting as the warden because he sells the menace and he sells the willingness to be just such an asshole. And the physical element of it, he doesn't loom or impose in the way that some of these like Kevin Nash or Goldberg or those guys do. But when he's standing in a room with Fickner, with Adam Sandler, he's a good foot taller. Sandler's not a big guy, right? He's not a tall man. So you really get that sense of menace coming off of those interactions, which I think plays well. And of course, Cromwell's a good actor to begin with, so like him a lot. There's like the Southern dandy guy that's Mm -hmm. his sidekick that's a little bit... Colonel Sanders. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit inexplicable and doesn't really do much except provide a little bit of exposition, I guess, where we find out the warden has some political aspirations... And granted, he does provide the foil for us to find out that the prison football team is so good because when college football players can't make the NFL, the warden recruits them with a good-paying job, and so they get a good football team out of it, and that football team is going to translate into some sort of political run for the warden later. Mm-hmm. But other than that, he doesn't really do much of value in the movie until the very end with the one line that did legitimately make me giggle. The warden's already taken away his dainty little binoculars when he's watching the game, and the mean machine is doing well against the jail guards. But then at the end of the game, when the mean machine was within one touchdown of the lead or something... Mean machine. Yeah. Mean machine. (laughs) And the dandy dude is fanning himself, and the warden reaches over, just viciously destroys the hand Mm. fan, and turns to him and says, well, that felt unnecessary. (laughs) Well played, sir. Well done. Well, I think maybe he's a Sandler friend. He worked with him in other films. Alan Covert, who plays a referee, has worked with Sandler many times. Yeah. And we mentioned Schneider already with his You Can Do It. He's in so many Sandler movies doing that in this era. And then even Tracy Morgan, I think they must have been friends from SNL. You got to believe so, right? The Grown Ups movie, Sandler cast some of his friends to be his actual friends in that. (laughs) So this started, well, it hadn't started. He'd already done it before. But we said before, he's a very loyal friend to his friends. You want to take it way back to what we were talking about with the critics hating this movie? A lot of the reason why he was getting so much hate from the movies he was making and, frankly, why some of the movies he was making were so bad is because of that loyalty, because of that bubble of friends. They think it's hilarious. Yeah. During filming, during post-production. There's like a masturbatory element of that kind of humor where it's like, oh, we're making each other laugh. Surely everybody else will find this funny. I don't know. It's kind of juvenile. And if you're not in that little circle, it sucks. Now, fortunately, in this movie, even though he brought in a lot of those guys, including Rob Schneider doing the you can do it moment, that's blessedly just one line and left alone, basically. And the ref character is a few moments that are actually kind of fun. But otherwise, he doesn't let that friendship element come into play too much. Yeah. And it might actually benefit it if he and Chris Rock were the good friends that we think they were. Are. (laughs) Yeah, are. Yeah, that actually plays into the relationship on screen. So this is one of those instances where it actually helped the movie and didn't lead to some sort of crappy cycle of self-indulgent humor. Bringing his buddies. I think Nash has spoken well of Sandler working with him on this film. Oh, really? And I think Austin did, too, on podcasts they've had. I'm pretty sure they have. Yeah. Oh, right on. So we didn't mention the director until the end of the podcast, but Peter Siegel did direct this. Well, we covered The Naked Gun two weeks ago. He did The Naked Gun 33 and a third. He also did 50 First Dates with Sandler. That's a pretty good movie, too. That was the year before this. So Sandler wasn't a pretty good run because that was, he was. a year before Longest Yard and Punch Drunk Love was a couple years before that. And then Siegel directed Grudge Match, the De Niro and Stallone boxing movie, which is 10 years old this year, so we might as well cover it at some point. Sheldon Turner wrote it. This was his debut screenplay. He got a Razzie nomination for it, which I don't think is entirely fair. But then he got an Oscar nomination four years later for Up in the Air, the movie <laughs> that Jason Reitman made with George Clooney. Sure. And, of course, they based on the 74 screenplay by Tracy Keenan Wynn, 
And also, as most Sandler comedies do, this relies on a lot of famous hits to set the mood. Spirit in the Sky, of course, plays at one point, and so many 70s hits that maybe Siegel likes, but you know Sandler does, because this happens in his movies over and over again. Although comedies do rely, especially sports comedies, on songs that we've heard many times before, when a scene changes, we're going to go kick their asses, cut to them getting off the bus or something, and it's a, we will, not that they do, we will rock you in this, but for example... And that might play into, you mentioned earlier, this was a surprisingly large budget movie. Part of that could have been licensing so many well-known songs from so many big bands. I buy that. Now, one thing we haven't talked about, and you mentioned director, you mentioned cut to, this reminds me, one of the things I enjoyed about this movie is the homage they paid in two separate sequences, as I recall, one in the practice and one during the game itself, to the editing that we talked about in the original. In the original, it's a little bit flashier, a little bit more like groovy 70s. It was nominated for an Oscar, that one was. It worked really well in the original. I thought it worked really well in this, too. They toned it down a little bit. It wasn't quite as groovy as it was. Mm. But as, like I said, an homage edit, I like that they put it in there. But I also like that they kept it minimal. I Mm. think it was a quick five-second sequence and then done, and we're not going to do it again. Tonal issues aside, you talk about a guy like Adam Sandler. You talk about a guy like Chris Rock. These are not men that are typically known for restraint in the projects that they create. Certainly Sandler. But there's so many elements of this movie that were restrained. 18 years ago, maybe this was, if not the first, because you already cited some of the other Sandler movies that were certainly good to well-constructed, if not great movies. But this was like an early symptom of Sandler maturing. Early-ish, anyway. Early-ish. He still put out a lot of schlock after this, Mm. a lot of terrible movies after this. But we don't have to go full bore on the estrogen gags. Let's try to be a little bit more sensitive about the transgender stuff. Let's not hammer home the homage stuff too hard. We'll just do it once quickly and let it go. There's a lot of restraint shown at various points in this movie. I feel like it was just a hair's breadth away from being a great remake, just a hair breadth away from applying that same restraint to a few other scenes, and I wonder if the critics would have felt wildly differently about this. Might be true. And when Rock gets serious, you know he's going to die, because they do that in these conversations in their jail cells when they share a bottle of champagne, is it? Or wine? Or some kind of liquor. Some sort of hooch. And they're being serious, one of the few times in the movie that Rock especially is. And it may not be the next scene, but not that long after, he's dead. Yeah. So we said the depiction of the sport is quite good, especially for a comedy. Austin, Goldberg, Irvin, so many people had experience playing football, so it's believable. For sure. As for can you score, well, Courtney Cox, for whatever that is, five or ten minutes, helps that factor. Cloris Leachman does not so much. And then the ball players themselves, a lot of these guys are in incredible shape and oh, great yeah. muscles. They're everywhere. So if you're either gay or a woman, then you're going to be happy. And if you like Courtney Cox, which I did in this film, then at least for a little while, you're happy there, too. Goldberg in the shower? Yeah. Just shredded. Giant that man. cock, apparently, too. Apparently. Yeah. So I'd give it a 6 out of 10. That's a passing grade. And it may be blasphemy, but I said at the top of the podcast, I think this is funnier than the original. I will say again, I don't think it's blasphemy. I think this is clearly funnier than the original. I'm a little bit higher on it than you are, which is a rarity for us in this podcast, Mm -hmm. but I go like six and a half to seven. It -hmm. does whipsaw sometimes from solemnity or this deeply dramatic moment to silly humor. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it works and sometimes it doesn't. He broke did my nose. Broke did my nose. That was actually kind of fun. Sets it again. Oh, it looks better than before. And he's Mm -hmm. all happy about it. This giant guy that's acting like a little baby. Yeah. A great example of this, and this is one where it actually worked for me, is the funeral scene that you talked about earlier with Caretaker, and it's all solemn and deeply dramatic, but then Terry Crews throws a cheeseburger on Mm -hmm. the coffin. That is both silly, but it works for the character. Something he would do. He's been doing it all movie long, so why not that too? Exactly. So I said this the last time we recorded this. I don't know how you make this movie 
in 2005. I don't know how you make it in 2023 without having that kind of effect because it is a movie that is meant to be constructed of those two elements. The real test of it as a viewer is like how much did each one of those elements work for you? They don't really dwell on it that much, but they are in prison the whole time, too. We don't yeah. really see much in the way of their usual prison stuff. Shawshank Redemption is almost like a prison documentary sometimes. Exactly. This does not really dwell on the fact that they're there the same way that a movie like that does. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think it's probably for the best because you get some of that early when Paul Crew was first being initiated in the prison. But if they lingered on it too much like they do in Shawshank, then I think you really have a problem with it being super dramatic and yeah. solemn a lot and then really weird and silly at other times and... Mm. Maybe that just exacerbates the problem. I wonder if that was a conscious decision when they were making the movie. It's like, let's just gloss over the prison stuff a little bit 30 minutes into the movie so that it mm. doesn't feel quite so dark and grim. They're mostly on the practice field, which, of course, the warden right. floods at one point because he's a cheating bastard. Yeah. Did it rain last night, guys? Not a drop. Oh, okay. But then, then they bond anyway. Yeah. And they, in turn, practice that flea flicker play, the laterals that, that we they see. used to score a touchdown in this game. The question I have for you... And I think the question any viewer of this movie's probably got to ask themselves when they're deciding, do I like this movie or not? Did the drama work for you when that was what the movie was focusing on? And did the comedy work for you when that was what it was focusing on? The comedy usually did the drama. Yeah. But I think you're right otherwise that sometimes it does whipsaw. Yeah. But that's the nature of this kind of film. I think the first one did it too. But we just didn't laugh at the great jokes. I don't remember what score I gave it. Maybe we weren't scoring movies at that point. May not have been yet. And I might have said six. What's the same score than Ryan? Yeah, but I enjoyed this more, whether it got the same score or not. Scoring is not consistent. You watch this movie tomorrow, maybe you give it a seven. Maybe you give it a five. Right. And same thing is true of the original. I think most movies we've covered for a while now, because we've covered some of the great ones, or Bev and I covered them for the other podcast a long time ago, are not going to be nines and tens. There aren't that many great sports movies other than really old ones, which we'll probably have problems with because they're going to be really old. That we have left to cover. I think we're going to be playing a lot, unless we try to like really shoehorn some great movies into a sports podcast, right. which I'm sure we will do. They discuss baseball for a minute and a half or ten seconds. I mean, we did. Just, we just talked about the Naked Gun and a thirty-minute section of that movie is at the baseball yeah, park. I know. We'll find ways to talk about other movies, right. but I think you're right. We're going to be playing a lot in these four to seven right. out of ten movies. Not right? entirely terrible, but not great either. Which is fine. There's a lot of those movies out there, and a lot of people like them. So, and this was fun. Yeah. Okay, well, enjoy the Super Bowl on February 12th. Who will win? We can't know. We're recording this on January 22nd, so we don't even know who will be playing in the Super Bowl at that point. But we do know that in two weeks, we'll get back on the racetrack as we see what's going on in the NASCAR comedy heist film, Steven Soderbergh's Logan Lucky, which I saw once and I thought was okay. Look forward to seeing it again. I don't remember it all that well. I know Daniel Craig gets to be fun in that. Yeah. And Adam Driver's in that, too. Give me a little bit of that Adam Driver ever since he and John Oliver had that fun bit going. Yes, I've really right. been all about Adam Driver. I, I forgive him Kylo Ren. Just give me more of that silly Adam Driver. I'm all about he it. He can do comedy. So we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. The email address is scoringatthemovies at gmail.com. Please rate, subscribe, share, all that kind of stuff. Tell your friends about us. We've been doing this for 122 episodes, I think I said. And of course, as we've made very clear, you can find The Longest Yard, the original, way back in our archives. We recorded this twice. Let's hope to God it works this time. I love Groundhog Day, but I don't want to live through Groundhog Day. I love Groundhog Day, but this is getting ridiculous. (laughs) Please work.